Hi, everyone. Welcome to um, Ask the Pastor. We, we, we got a few questions, quite a number of questions, actually, that have come in from last week's teaching um, throughout the series of um, on eschatology and time. So we're going to try and give a few answers to some of these questions today, hoping that, too, that on Sunday we'll be able to put some of this into a compilation of notes and they'll be available for everybody to read. They'll be posted on um on Facebook and so on anyway, but yeah, hopefully that you can get those notes and then, then you'll be able to refer to a lot of scriptures. I'm going to make mention of a lot of scriptures, I'm not going to look at them per se, but you can certainly take opportunity to, to do that yourself and um, hopefully it'll prove to be somewhat more enlightening and hopefully prove to be um, biblically driven, which is uh, more important than anything. So first question is this, when do the two witnesses appear for the three and a half years ministry during the tribulation period. Now, there's a lot of debate around this whole subject about these two, two witnesses. Um, some scholars see them ministering during the first part of the tribulation period, uh, but uh, that's where majority probably of conservative scholars would settle. But certainly, um, I'm personally inclined to think that they they come to the fore, if you want, during the, the second three and a half uh, years of the overall seven-year tribulation period. And the most most conservative scholars who follow a premillennial interpretation of, of the end times uh, seem to lean, uh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, but the majority probably lean that way. And they certainly lean to seeing these witnesses being Elijah and Moses. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 informs us on the return of the prophet Elijah uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So we're, we're quite clear that um, Elijah appears to be one of them. Then in Exodus 7, 20 to 21, we see Moses under the authority of the Lord turning the water into blood. Uh, and then in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, the two witnesses seem to be able to perform uh, the same sort of miracle, showing that, that they have this authority given to them from God to turn water into blood. So that leads us to believe that there's every potential Moses could be uh, the other witness here. So we're aware that Elijah never physically died. Of course, we know that. But rather, he was taken up to heaven in a, a whirlwind of fire, if you want. Also, the burial place of Moses remains unknown, according to uh, Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. And that background gives us an appreciation of their appearing with the Lord at his transfiguration. So they're with the Lord, these two guys. And so that leads us again to have this thought that there's every possibility it's Elijah and Moses. We do know that their bodies will lie in the street in Jerusalem for three and a half days after they're being killed by the, the beast. Uh, and due to their being hated by or opposed by the whole world at that time because of the message that they have faithfully been proclaiming, uh, their bodies are placed on public display. And the purpose of that is to give an abomination to all that the Jews would have practiced uh, at one time in their beloved city. This was a sacred city. This was a, the city of God. So everything we practiced there would have been um, of a, a Jewish um, Hebrew type nature. And this is opposing all of that. And so by refusing to bury these enemies of Antichrist, it was a statement saying that um, this is a great dishonor of these two, two witnesses from God. They're dishonoring all that Yahweh, all that God is about by letting these witnesses lie there in that manner. It was a public statement from Antichrist to bring defilement upon the land of Israel and upon the city of Jerusalem. And we get some of that thinking from Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, back in the, the law. 
So uh, that helps us understand a little bit of um, who they were and what they were about. Now, moving on from that, the, another question springs in there. Is the story of the rich man a parable or true account? And so here we have this story of the rich man where he is taken from this life and all the pleasures that he's enjoyed in life, and he finds himself in what we would call hell and um he's he's burning there and he appeals to father abraham to come send lazarus to ease his pain and so on so we get these names that are mentioned in there it does remain a little unknown as to whether the account in luke 16 is actually fa uh, sort of factual or whether it's intentionally parabolic in the whole thing but because of the names used for the individuals some have interpreted the account, interpreted the account as being factual we'll open that up a little bit in some of the other questions that come out today but it is a little um sort of uh, unknown and it's, uh, scholars are mixed in their opinion and their views of it number three how can the save be eternally joyful? These are really good questions, by the way. How can the save be eternally joyful whenever loved ones and enemies who were also told to to love are in hell? Uh, because of if the damned, because of the damned uh, can remember, I dare say the save can also. Really good question. So the, the point being, how can we enjoy um, the pleasures of heaven knowing that loved ones are in hell? And if the unsaved, hence the, the rich man who we just mentioned there, if he's in hell and he can remember life, then the thought of uh, the, the saved being able to remember the good things, the people, all of those things in life could be troubling for us as well. So some argue that those in heaven will have no knowledge of the existence of such a place as hell. Uh, that's a, a nice thought, it's a comforting thought, but it doesn't appear to have any real biblically based reasoning behind it. It most certainly is a, a, a thought that um, eases things for us in our mind, but it carries more point to think that those in heaven will be fully supportive and in agreement with every decision made by the God whom we claim to adore and worship and whom we recognize as being the authority within this whole universe that he has created. So when we're in heaven, the point being is that we will agree with everything that God says, because everything that he says is holy, pure, true, right, all the rest of it that goes with that. So we're going to be in complete agreement with God. At the end of time, God will vindicate himself by judging in a punishing manner all those who have rejected his gift in Christ for salvation from sin. And it makes sense that we then, his redeemed who love him purely and perfectly at that point in time, uh, even though the time doesn't exist at that point, but you get my, my, my argument there, will say amen to his judgments. And so if we look at John 5, 22 to 29 and Revelation 20, 11 to 15, we get a little bit of an insight and some of that you know in heaven it seems that we will agree with all of our holy god's judgments on sinful man so we're removing ourselves and putting sinful man in the picture aside from ourselves and aside from what our connection relationship has been here on earth with those people we need to appreciate presently that god in his sovereignty ha has no desire for anyone to perish at all uh first timothy 2 3 to 4 and uh 2 peter 3 9 make that quite clear it's not the father's will that any should perish but that all should come to repentance sadly however many will perish 
due to their unbelief. And we get uh, an understanding of that from Matthew 7, 13, where these religious people appear before God, but he, he says, depart from me, I never knew you, and so on, uh, the whole picture in there. And it does seem that whenever we are in heaven, God will be our entire eternal focus, our whole focus of life, our whole focus of the future, our whole focus of eternity is going to be on our great God. So we will not be taken up by thinking about or reflecting on this life. I'm not suggesting that we don't have any memories of this life, but we're not going to be consumed by this life, uh, even by the people that we once knew or even loved whilst we're here on this earth. Now, in all of that, I find these um, comments by Randy Alcorn to be very helpful here. Randy Alcorn says this, uh, and it is a little controversial, it's a little thought provoking, but it, it is it's, it's helpful. He writes, although it may be although it may inevitably sound, sound harsh, I offer this further thought. In a sense, none of our loved ones will be in hell, only some whom we once loved. Our love for our companions in heaven will be directly linked to God, the central object of our love. We will see him in them. We will not love those in hell because when we see Jesus as he is, we will love only and will only want to love whoever and whatever pleases and glorifies and reflects him. So now that's the comment that sort of helps us get our heads around a little bit of that. It's not a biblical comment, but it's a commentary that um, can certainly direct our appreciation of what the Bible is trying to say to us. We also have to hold in thought that when we're in heaven, the sorrows and the troubles that grievous now will have completely disappeared from our lives and most likely from our understanding. So we read in Revelation 21, 4, that God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his beloved. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. So there's not going to be any of those things in heaven. So the, the memories are not going to be troubling us in that same way as we think of loved ones who may not be there with us or whatever. So really unknown circumstances, but I think we can get our heads around some of that to recognize we're going to be glorifying God, worshiping him, agreeing with him fully, and not caught up in people who were, people that we have known, or whatever, family, whatever. So that's a, a controversial one, but a really a really good one to think about. And number four, how come the rich man is in Hades or hell before the great white throne judgment? And that's another really good question. So in response, it causes me to think that uh, the account in Luke 16 is parabolic in nature rather than making reference to literal people and their suffering. Um, obviously, as Jesus told this account, his hearers would have had similar thought. Um, having said that, another view is that, that, that of the deceased from all time, past and yet to come, even those who haven't even perhaps been born and will be deceased at some point in the future, go to their eternal destination. Hence, we today refer to people as being in the presence of the Lord. So they have passed away, and we say the believer is in the presence of the Lord. Now, avoiding any purgatorial thinking here, it may, <clears throat> it may not be unreasonable to consider that those who have passed are with the Lord in paradise, as he said to the acceptant thief that, cru that was crucified with him. Paradise can be viewed as a, um, uh, a place where the, the, the saved um, enjoy Edenic pleasures, awaiting their future resurrection to the beam of judgment, where they will receive the rewards for service to Christ, while the unsaved are left in another part of paradise. We did mention this one week in the past there. Another part of paradise to await their resurrection to the great white throne judgment, judgment which will be final and terrifying. I, I'm inclined to, 
hold of you that both groups know their eternal destiny. So that the believers waiting in paradise and enjoying being in the presence of the Lord, that they know where they're going to be. And the unsaved waiting in their part of, uh, if you want, Hades, they know where they're going to be. So they're going to be resurrected to punishment. They're going to be resurrected to judgment, which will be brutal and terrifying. So the rich man here, he does not appear in hell before the great white throne judgment. Instead, he, along with the other, all the other unsaved, must await their eternal destiny, which has been decided because he is dead and has died without Christ as being his Lord. So he's lost in that sense. He has died. No relationship with Jesus. No, um, no forgiveness from Christ. Uh, no glorification of God in his life. Purely all about him. So he's lost, and he's now waiting to be resurrected to his future punishment, which will be uh, the judgment of the great white throne and then punished eternally and being departed from God forever. Number five, are there degrees of punishment commensurate with one's wickedness because he spoke both of wandering stars and the outer darkness, uh, sounds cold as well as the lake of fire. And the wandering stars, that's from a quote by um, one, one author suggesting that people um, will wander, will struggle um, eternally in that sense, they'll, they'll be like lost, is really the emphasis he's trying to make there. But it appears that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. For example, Jesus told the people of Capernaum that it would be worse for them in the judgment than for Sodom, recorded for us in Matthew 11, 21 to 24. That's a pretty shocking statement right there. It also seems that those who sin, knowing that they're sinning, will receive a greater punishment in hell than those who have sinned ignorantly. Uh, Luke 12, 47 and 48 can help us in an understanding of that one. So people sin ignorantly, um, not aware that they're offending God, opposing God, but it's still sin. It's still taking them to a lost eternity. But those who sin with knowledge that I'm really, God says this, I believe there's a God, I believe in Christ, I believe Christ has died and so on, but I'm just opposing that, I'm going against all of that. There's going to be greater punishment, it seems, in, in hell uh, for them. They both will receive, will receive punishment suited to their sin, uh, and we need to acknowledge that they're lost in hell um, because of their sin and not their knowledge or lack of it. So it's nothing to do with their knowledge, it's to do with sin. So we see that some sins are greater than others, but all sins, and even one sin keeps us out of, out of heaven unless repentance and forgiveness have been awarded to us. Now this, uh, the reference to wandering stars was that of one writer's efforts to express in understandable language what it might be like to be eternally lost, trying to perceive what would it be like for that experience. I don't consider that the lost will be wandering by the stars necessarily, but it would be an incredibly lonely existence, especially as we each want to have been created by God for his glory and uh, an eternal relationship with him. And the only way a person can be fulfilled is to have that relationship, uh, that correct relationship with God. And the only way that we can have that is to know Jesus Christ to be our Redeemer, and to have been the one who's forgiven us of our sins. So without that, without that forgiveness of sins in Christ alone, we're lost and we're just like wandering stars in that sense, even currently. <clears throat> Number six, do the resurrected damned have eternal bodies similar to those of the saved? That's a great question. Uh, you know, like angels, humans were, we've been created to live 
forever haven't just been created for a season but to live forever hence we talk about the first and the second death the first death being that of physical death so we die we're put in the grave or whatever whilst the second death is spiritual and serves as the introduction to one's eternal existence in the case of the unregenerate there um, Hebrews 6 verse 2 teaches eternal judgment as being a fundamental doctrine. There will be judgment. And the words translated as destroy, destruction, and texts such as Matthew 10, 18, and Philippians 3, 19, never refer to a conclusion of existence. And Paul explains the meaning of the penalty of eternal destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 as being away, moved away, separated from the presence of of the Lord. And that being so, it would seem that extinction or non-existence or annihilationism, which is growing in popularity amongst evangelicals, uh, that is where uh, the, the, the unsaved just go to the earth and they're, they're forgotten, they're gone, they're never, never um, just put back into the dust of the earth, if you want. And there's no eternal existence. And that's becoming a more and more um, accepted view and one that brings obviously a certain amount of comfort with it. However, I can't see it as a biblical view, and it certainly doesn't talk about, it's not a representation of the eternality of the soul. So for annihilationists, only the only eternality of the soul is for the believer. The unbeliever has not got that eternality, but we don't have that uh, a biblical uh, statement of evidence really uh, for that, providing that. So believing in hell and looking at those in hell, uh, those who are uh, the, the, these who have a similar body to their redeemed they will suffer excruciating pain or torment both emotionally and physically uh, john 5 28 to 29 and we think even of the rich man he, he cried out about the flames uh, licking around him he was feeling the torment of hell and he seemed to have that conscious understanding whether it's a parable or a literal happening if it's a parable it's jesus telling us this is what it could be like um hell is worse we read in mark 9 verse 42 than being drowned at sea. Um, hell is worse than being physically maimed in Mark 9, 43. And we read of the wicked, uh, that they're going to be burned in unquenchable fire, Matthew 3, verse 12. We also read in Matthew 12 that there will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth in hell. is going to be this whole punishment happening right there. So with all of that, I I'm convinced that the unsaved, the lost, will suffer in hell with physical bodies, of an eternal nature. That's why it's important that we proclaim and declare the truth uh, that's found in the forgiveness of the gospel through Jesus Christ only to our fellow man, to our family members, our loved ones, uh, people around us, to the world beyond us, uh, currently in this lifetime that we have before we're taken to be with the Lord. Now, number seven, why is the book of life opened at the great white throne judgment if no one under that judgment is named in it? That's a really, that, that one, was a really surprising question, a really good one. So it seems that at, at this judgment, uh, uh, the Great White Throne judgment, the books will be opened, plural, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And these books are God's records of every action of every unsaved person, that's the lost, the unredeemed soul, of every action of every unsaved person. And according to verse 13, every unsaved person will be judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Now the saved, the redeemed, we're forgiven of our sins. So our actions are not, not recorded in that sense against us. 
So we need to remember that at the great white throne judgment, no believer, no saved person will be in attendance. Yet verse 15 of our text there in Revelation 12 states that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And the opening of the books must just be for comparison purposes, it would seem. It would seem. So there's these books that are going to compare and compare who's who and what's what in life. Um, author Henry Morris attempted to explain it with these words. He writes, one can speculate that beside each person's name as entered in the book at the time of conception will be recorded, recorded the genuineness of that conversion. Is this person real? Have they really converted to Christ? Or are they just mouthing words? Uh, where's, where's that at? So, um, however, if there are, um, so let, let me go back there a little bit. We'll be recorded at, okay, one can speculate that beside each person's name is entered in the book at the time of conception will be will be recorded the time of his, of his age accountability. So when did he come to an understanding? And that's going to differ. And God makes that call uh, is his point here. He continues the date of his conversion to Christ as a savior. So when did he commit, he or she commit their life to Christ? When did they say, I'm a sinner, I need Christ to be my redeemer? And then evidence demonstrating the genuineness of that conversion. Was this a true, genuine, real conversion? Did they really experience the forgiveness of sin? Were they really repentant in their whole thinking? However, if there are no entries for the last two items, by the time that person dies, the entire entry will be blotted out according to Revelation 3, verse 5. And an awful blank will be left uh, in, the, in the book at the place where his name would have been. Exhibiting this blank spot in the book will be the final and conclusive evidence that the person being judged must be consigned to the lake of fire. So these persons will say, but, but didn't I do this in your name, Jesus? Didn't I cast out demons? Didn't I do this? Didn't I heal people? Didn't I do great exploits for you didn't i follow you and he says i never knew you because you were it wasn't genuine it wasn't real so it's a very important understanding that we get that clear so the book of life seems to be opened in that purpose at that point in time potentially this is the reasoning for the opening of the book of life at the great white throne judgment so i hope that helps bring a little bit of clarity uh, to those um, questions there now continuing on another question was uh, those who died prior to jesus coming to earth and those who have uh, died not hearing the gospel without any knowledge of it and his chosen people the jews are they all part of the great white throne judgment as I said, the Great White Throne Judgment is a judgment set aside for all those who have never accepted God's free gift of salvation in Christ alone. It seems that their reason for rejecting it uh, is not the issue in question here, but rather the fact that they're unsaved, unregenerate, and therefore warranting the full force of God's wrath and judgment upon them. They've rejected the gift of God's Son, irrespective of circumstances surrounding knowledge or lack of knowledge with that. <clears throat> Now, we read of this particular judgment in Revelation 20, 11 to 15, uh, and the believers will have been rewarded at the Bema judgment seat of Christ, as I mentioned, and will now be married to King Jesus. And the millennial reign of Christ here on earth will be concluded, so all the un and so all of the unsaved of all the ages of time will be resurrected to life at the end of all things to be judged by Christ, whom God has given the responsibility to do so in John 5, 22. And it seems that whether someone has heard the gospel or not is not the issue at all. During the tribulation period, God will send out 144,000 Jewish converts in a gracious manner to tell his gospel to the ends of the earth. That is, to the regions of the world where we, the church, have failed to get the gospel 
to at this point in time. So we have failed to get the gospel to these vocations. And that's a, a shame on us as the church. We should be sending people. We should be doing that, mobilizing people to take the gospel there. And the gospel should be clear in this presentation too. But we're failing to do that. So God will send these 144,000 Jews out at that time. Uh, and this also means that the rapture could be imminent. We could be snatched away at any point in time. So the whole world will have heard his truth prior to the return of Christ to earth for his millennial kingdom. Every person will know who he is, what he is, and what he has done. Now, there's a mention later on that in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Acts 4, verse 12, Peter tells us, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that lets us know that there's only one way to have a relationship with God the Father, it's through Jesus Christ only. So we, the church, are called to preach the gospel, as I said there, according to Romans 10, 13 to 15. In answer to that question, I believe that Scripture teaches that irrespective of your circumstances of life, if someone, for whatever reason, hearing and rejecting or not hearing at all, uh, and we put Romans chapter 1 in there, rejects Christ as Lord of their life, they're lost and they will appear at the great white throne judgment, irrespective of when they have been permitted to live here on earth by God, either before or after the time of Christ. So that life lifespan of Christ, if people were living before that, and they, 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 they haven't responded or they didn't hear the truth, they're lost. And people after that, that we, the church, haven't got the message through and that they die in their sin. Those people sadly, tragically are lost. But we know the judge of all earth, judge of all things, does nothing wrong. So we have to sit with an understanding of that. But we have responsibility to glorify him currently by taking his message to the ends of the earth. So these are these are big issues, huge questions. And um, I'd love to hear, love that, that you people are thinking like this. This is so encouraging. Now, another point is we read in First, Ma First Timothy chapter 2 and 4 and 2 Peter 3 and 9 that God is not willing for any to perish. Yet Jesus also said that he is the way in John 14, verse 6. Also in Acts 4, verse 12, we read of there, of there being no other name by which man can be saved. Um, will some of those at the great white throne judgment be among the saved as they will be judged by their works, uh, as mentioned in Revelation 20.12 and Deuteronomy 4.29. And it seems that no one appearing at the great white throne judgment is among the truly saved. Uh, this is a judgment, as I mentioned, set aside only for the unconverted, irrespective of what people think about themselves. They may think I'm redeemed. They may think I'm saved. They may think I'm right with God, but they might not be. That's why we must be certain of our, of our walk with Jesus. So many people will be religious and potentially very religious, as suggested by Jesus with his comments in Matthew 7, and 20, uh, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, where he tells these people that he never knew them, even though they claim they've done amazing exploits in his name and potentially done these things for his honor, and that might even have been their intent. Such people will find themselves being judged at this judgment, which only leads to rejection by Christ and damnation in hell, separated from him for all eternity. They're going to find themselves there. But the judgment according to by their works will be um, uh, in line with their thoughts, as mentioned in Luke 8, 17. So their thoughts will find them guilty. Uh, their words in 12, Matthew 12, 37 will find them guilty. Their actions in Matthew 16, 27 will find them guilty. And each of these practices will be compared not to their fellow man, not to the, the church or the circumstances they were involved in, but compared to God's perfect and holy standard. So God will say, here's my standard, which is Christ, 
you, you fell short to that. You didn't make that standard. And we know the only way we can make that standard is by having experienced the forgiveness of Jesus for our sins and therefore being in a relationship with him. So they're going to be uh, falling short in all of this, as uh, mentioned in Matthew 5, 48, and then 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. So these people tragically, sadly, will be lost and will have no eternal destiny uh, with, with Jesus in that sense. Now we come to Romans 10 then that says um, that all have heard the gospel, all have heard the gospel, but where do these people pre-Christ, pre before Christ and the Jews fit into this? Have they heard or have they already been excluded from this? And all of those living after Christ has been to earth and given themselves for the sins of man on the cross at Calvary, whether Jew or Gentile, and who have accepted Christ as being their Savior and Lord, are exempt from the great white throne judgment as it is a judgment only for the unsaved unregenerate. So that's clear to us. In the text, Paul writes about the fact that um, he desires Israel to be saved. He wants Israel to really come to, to walk after Yahweh and to follow his truth. He recognizes that they have a, a zeal for God, but, but sadly it's a legalistic zeal that loves to keep the law and to boast of their keeping of the law, which is a, an ignorant type of zeal. They want to feel good, sound good, and say, look how good we are. We kept the law, so, so therefore... God, we're right with you. We have kept your law. We, we've followed your directions and uh, we've been zealous in that. And his point is that he has probably been, Paul has probably been more zealous than any of them to keep the law, according to Galatians 1, 13 and 14 and Philippians 3, 5 and 6. But he has now realized that in doing so, he was never right with God as Christ was not his savior. Keeping the law, Paul realized, didn't get him into that right relationship with God, didn't get him into the right relationship relationship with Jesus where he had, his, he had his sin forgiven. So these Jews, his fellow, these Jews, Jews that he's talking about were guilty of trying to get uh, trying to get to God by their own effort. Uh, they're, they're coming to God saying, I've done this, we've done this, we're coming our way, we're using your law as a springboard, but we're coming our own way. They were incapable of fulfilling the law, as are all of us, yet they boasted how good they were. They were. Um, uh, Paul now tells them that, that Christ is the end of the law. That is, Jesus is the only one who can fulfill the law, um, but they're trying to do it themselves. They actually blaspheme God's sacrificial gift of forgiveness in Christ alone. They say, we don't need that sacrifice. We're getting there on our own. We're getting there through the church efforts. We're getting there through the things, the works that we do. We're getting there through someone taking us, but it's not Jesus. And so they, they blaspheme the actual sacrificial uh, practice and manner of Jesus Christ given to, by, given to mankind by God the Father in hope of uh, forgiveness of sin. And so from here, Paul continues in our text to tell the Jews how they can get how they can get rid of how they can get right with God and have their sins forgiven. They must repent of their sin. That's so important. And he clarifies this practice applies to both the Jew and the Gentile alike. He doesn't say because you're Jewish you're in, because you're Gentile you're out. He says both of you must come to this practice of repentance. Without repentance, you're not going to be part of the family of God. And all who have followed God genuinely in a pre-Christ era will be forgiven of their sin. Hence your, your reference there to Deuteronomy 4.29. However, they're not part of the church as the church began at Pentecost and, and recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. They belong to what we refer to as the Old Testament saints. It's the church who Jesus Christ will 
called himself as the bride at the rapture, then at the second coming to the earth to set up his millennial kingdom, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected to join with Christ and his bride in the ruling of the kingdom. Uh, Daniel uh, 12 verse 2 directs our thinking on that one. And together we're going to rule in the kingdom according to Matthew 8 verse 11. So we see that our future is going to be set there irrespective of the background, irrespective of um, whether we're Jew or Gentile, before Christ, after Christ, we have to come to this place and fit into his way here. So that we, today, what we call the church can be with him and the resurrected Old Testament saints can join us and be part of that uh, wonderful millennial kingdom in the future. Now, our final question is this. The writer here says, I recall reading one time that the righteous dead pre-Jesus or before Jesus time are in what was described as the bosom of Abraham, Sheol, or a part of Hades known as paradise. Uh, those in it were taken up to heaven by Jesus as captives, uh, mentions there chapter uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Are these the people of Ezekiel 37, 1-14? Uh, that's where the, the, the dead people, dry bones, come to life, if you want. Um, continues on, is there another chance for them to hear the message of salvation, perhaps back on earth, during a tribulation or post-rapture time. Well, generally Ezekiel 37 and precluding and following chapters are recognized as being a record of God's covenant with Israel as to the restoration and the reunification, having the people having wandered away from God's ways and his truth. They're no longer practicing the ways of God. Sheol or Hades, as you mentioned here, had an area referred to as paradise, which is where the thief went to on the cross after his death, after being crucified with Jesus. So he's brought in, he's crucified with Jesus, and Jesus says, and this day you'll be with me in paradise. And he makes it clear it's going to paradise. And so he was going to be um, taken right there. Um, it was also known as Abraham's bosom. Paradise could also be referred to as Abraham's bosom. And Paul's quote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, is taken from Psalm 68, verse 18. And it seems that Paul uses this quote in Ephesians in his text to emphasize Christ's ascension to the heavens and, and triumph. He's, he's saying there, when Jesus ascended, there was a victory, there was a, a triumph. Contextually, he is emphasizing that by enjoying such triumph over sin, death, the grave, Jesus is capable of distributing spiritual gifts to his people, uh, as, record, as mentioned in verse 7 and 8 of that text. So in Psalm 68, King David is celebrating God's victory over the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. And traditionally, after such a victory, the king would bring home the spoils uh, along with the prisoners that he had captured in that city. So Paul is visualizing the return of Jesus from earth to the splendor of the heavenly city with his trophies, his spoils that he has snatched away from his enemy. We once were held in the, the grip of Satan, but, but Jesus, through redemption, has snatched us. He has set the captives free. We're free now living for Jesus. And so that's the, the part of the spoils of um, and the trophies of his, his grace, if you want, what he has done for us. Obviously, the Lord's enemy is Satan, who was holding what Christ had redeemed himself at Calvary. So he was breaking the authority of spiritual captivity and setting those captives free. Now, there is no second chance for salvation by the possible return to earth during the tribulation or post-rapture time. People do seem to, however, have opportunity to get saved, converted during the tribulation period. Hence the 144,000 Jewish converts that were mentioned earlier being sent out um, to the whole world to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ 
alone at Revelation 7, 9 to 14, and of course that, that um, alliance with Joel chapter 2, 32. And those who do come to Christ through this proclamation will be aware that the cost of their choice will, will be incredibly, uh, incredibly heavy for them. It will mean martyrdom as they will re reject what's referred to as the mark of the beast, 666 we call it. So they're going to reject that and they're saying, we, we, we're not going to take that because we have found another way. And the way to life is Jesus Christ. These, these brothers have told us and we're following that way is what they're going to say. And by rejecting the mark of the beast, this will disable them from being able to live, basically. They won't be able to purchase food. They won't be able to buy fuel. They'll not have any be able to pay their rent or their mortgage, etc., etc., etc. So salvation during this time will be incredibly difficult and incredibly costly. The Holy Spirit is also gone. So there's no conviction of sin. So the, these 144,000 Jews are telling the, the, the practice of salvation and people are responding in a, a knowledgeable way with a desire to say, yes, we got this wrong. We want to give our lives. We want to give our lives for the sake of God and it will cost them their very life. So they'll come to know Jesus. It's going to be very costly, but by the grace of God, it appears that amazingly, even during that time, the tribulation time, there is opportunity for salvation, which is amazing, good news, God's grace everywhere and all of that. So I hope that those um, attempted answers, attempted responses really uh, are helpful for us. They probably provoke more thoughts along the way. I know I get lots of thoughts and um, lots of uh, challenges to think about, but these are good things to contemplate on, good things to think about, and good things to really be pursuing in our walk with God and our understanding of him. So I trust that you'll benefit from that. Trust that you'll be blessed as you continue to study, as you continue to have questions. Please send your questions to us. Let us know. And together we can grow. Together we can learn. Together we can journey to home and to heaven for the glory of Jesus Christ and all that he means to all of us. So be blessed. Be encouraged. And uh, keep pressing on with him. And let's keep looking up for that moment when he will take us to be with himself. Thank you for your time. And thank you for listening and your encouragement along the way. Be blessed and keep thinking about him.